Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 18. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke 18? We're going to pick up at verse 31. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Now remember at this point in the gospel, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is headed toward Jerusalem. In the next chapter, in verse 28, Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and the last week of his earthly work is commenced. So we're right right before this entry into Jerusalem. Another thing to remember is that Jesus, throughout the the three years that he was with his apostles, he, he gave special attention to a few men. He he would he would often give special attention uh, to the apostles, and at various points to subsets of the apostles. Right? Uh, you remember uh, Jesus' transfiguration. Not all of the apostles got to go along uh, for that uh, glorious time. Only Peter and James and John. So they went there. They learned about Jesus. They saw his glory. And that would become part of uh, Jesus' ministry to them, but also their ministry to us in, in relaying what happened. Here our text says that Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them. So he, he removes them away from the crowds that have been around to teach them very specifically. He's giving them teaching that he intends to keep from the masses. This is just for his apostles, right? And of course... Anyone who trains people for leadership knows that that's appropriate and necessary. You, you have to do that. Jesus poured himself into the apostles, and those apostles poured themselves into very specific individuals, Paul, like Titus and Timothy. Um, and then those men poured themselves into other specific men and trained up uh, elders for the church. And so uh, this is why. In, in Christian cultures, in the Christian church, mentorship and apprenticeship models will always be present. Uh, there are those who are godly. There are those who are proven. There are those who are trained. There are those who are experienced. And they take what God has given them and they pass it on to those that come afterwards. And so this is what Jesus is doing here with these 12 well, 11 minus 1, but 12, so that they, they will be feeding the church through the ages. 
Modern, our culture fights against this, doesn't it? Um, here's what I was thinking. I mean, this is just me vamping on, this, on the fact that Jesus took 12 men aside and talked to them, okay? Google kills specialization, doesn't it? No more experts, right? You don't need experts to teach neophytes. You don't need apprenticeship. You've got Google, right? I no longer need to be taught how to change the oil on my car by my father. I've got Google for that. Right? I, there are a whole host of things that I no longer rely on, like, incarnated, like, real people for. I just go to Google, Right, And if you expand that out and just what, what Google's doing, it kills specialization. There's no, no reason for it. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, transhumanism, right? the, the uh, quest for eternal life through medical technology and bio-whatevers. Um, transhumanism, and I would also say egalitarianism, kills distinctions of any kind, right? Transhumanism tries to make everybody immortal and everybody strong. Egalitarianism tries to make everybody equally weak, right? So there's no hierarchy. Therefore, you have no experts and you have no neophytes, right? So transhumanism, egalitarianism kill distinctions so that you you no longer, it's scandalous even, right, to have somebody who's strong, and somebody is weak. I mean, yeah. Millennials, think of this. Millennials, from what I read in the news, feel the burn for socialism. Right? And what is socialism? No, it's no more hard workers training the unskilled. It's just... Yeah, spread the poverty, right? Okay. So modern egalitarian culture does not mentor because it tenaciously refuses to allow anyone to claim or exercise authority over another. Right? Our modern society hates authority. Okay, so, so college students now write policy for university presidents. Right? Tweeting prophets condemn ministers of the word to hell for supporting, for, for, for opposing what's righteous. Right? And in the end, the, the only one left today who has any authority is the victim, the victim of the old view of authority. And so such is the trajectory of those who rebel against Jesus Christ, right? Who has what? all authority in heaven and on earth. But the church, the church won't be like that. The church is ever and always seeking to preach and proclaim authority, right? The authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ delegated out through those that he calls. And that, that authority is shown in this little picture that we get in uh, verse 31. He took the 12 aside. Jesus used his authority 
to train the weak apostles who would then go out and do the same thing in each and every church. And that process continues down until today. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul wrote to Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right? Handing on, handing down. Now, what does Jesus tell them in this aside? And these are, these are pregnant words. These are, in, these are intense words. He is giving them a roadmap of the coming week. And the first thing he says is this, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. This was no secret. This was no mystery to the apostles. They knew this. Jesus had been saying this up to this point. Um, back in chapter 13, uh, of Luke, Jesus says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And he's been saying these things. The apostles know, know where they're going. They've been headed there for some time. And then, and then Jesus tells them what is about to take place in Jerusalem. And the fact that what is about to take place in Jerusalem has been the topic of the prophets of God through all of history. What is about to take place has been the topic of the prophets of God through all of history. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. You know, and, and you think about that. You think, man, the apostles must have just been like, oh. They weren't. Now, what prophecies were written that are about to be fulfilled in the coming week? Let me just share a few of these with you to remind you. Jesus' betrayal was prophesied 1,000 years earlier by King David. Right, Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me thousand years waiting to be fulfilled, and it's coming in this week. Jesus being mistreated by unbelievers was prophesied about 700 years before in the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Jesus mentions he would be spat upon. He's thinking of the prophet Isaiah when he says that to the apostles. Think of this. Jesus' silence before those who accuse him is prophesied again by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus' death for sins. His vicarious atonement, again, in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 again. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The whole of the crucifixion, the whole of the crucifixion is prophesied a thousand years prior through, again, the prophet King David. 
That psalm begins with these words. Do you remember the beginning of Psalm 22? Quoted by Jesus as he died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Jesus' burial in a rich man's tomb is prophesied by Isaiah again in chapter 53. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Okay, and so there are many more prophecies by the prophets that are going to be fulfilled in this coming week. The prophets, I mean, think of this. The prophets have been singing about this week of Jesus' life for century after century after century after century. They've been singing of this. They've been prophesying in every age of the church about Jesus Christ and his coming sacrifice. Even even back, right, to the days when the universe was, was an infant, right? It was fresh and young. God spoke to Adam and Eve with these words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Right? So the scriptures from beginning to end speak of Jesus Christ. He says so himself, right? After his resurrection from the dead, as he spent, uh, spent some days among his disciples, he taught them this, saying, and this is from Luke 24, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now think of this. Jesus Jesus read those scriptures Jesus studied those scriptures, the scriptures that were inspired through his Holy Spirit. When Isaiah wrote them, when Moses wrote them, when David wrote these these prophecies, Jesus, as God, knew exactly what they meant. He was inspiring them, right? He knew exactly how they would be fulfilled. Now Jesus has taken on the flesh. He is the God-man and is reading these verses as a man, having to depend on the Holy Spirit. God has entered into the canvas of his own painting, so to speak, and, and, um, and we know Jesus is agonizing. And where does he go for comfort? Well, he withdraws and prays. He also goes to the word that he knew and his spirit inspired to find support for his work. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, reflects on Jesus reading the scriptures as a man. He says this, If you could read a book about your life before the events happened, imagine the curiosity, anxiety, and hope that would fill your soul. But what about reading a book not only about your life, but also about your death, even down to the the minutest detail? 
Such a book might fill you not simply with anxiety, but with terror. On the other hand, the prospect of future life after death, as well as of the highest possible glory that can be communicated to someone, might cause you to read with a lot of passionate interest. Jesus, Mark Jones says, was in such a position. I mean, think of that. We don't think of Jesus doing the things that we do. Right? He had to eat. He ate food. Right? He he ate fish and he ate bread, just as his disciples did. He also read the scriptures. He opened up those scrolls and read them. Now, that might be a new thought for some. The scriptures inspired by God were read by Jesus, the Son of God, as a man, which means that as a man, the scriptures were not just written by him or even about him, but they were written for him. Jesus needed to read of the prophecies of these his servants through the ages when he was the final prophet. He, in studying them, in returning to them, in meditating upon them, saw the details right now that were not open to the apostles and to their understanding. He learned of his agony. He learned of his cross. He learned of his death. He also learned about his glory. And this is, this is what he's been teaching to these men, men who as of yet do not understand what he's talking about. So as he says back in Luke 18, 32, For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. He's not just prophesying out of the blue what will happen to him, right? He's not just, because he's God, he's not right there just prophesying out of his own knowledge, out of the blue, what will happen to him. He's known what will happen to him, but he's referring now to the scriptures. I mean, there's a sense in which he's depending right now for his words upon the word of God. He, he, He could have said here, he could have said in other places, that here's what the Father has given me to do. Here's what's gonna, here's what the Father has given me to do. But instead he says, all things which are written through the prophets about me will be accomplished. Do you see the difference there? Here's what's going to happen versus here's what must happen because the prophets have written about it in the word. He learned what was there as a man. And he believed without any shadow of a doubt that what was written there was what was going to happen What was written there was about his suffering. What was written there was about his resurrection. So if Jesus looked to the word for assurance, if Jesus looked to the word for understanding, if Jesus looked to the word for the will of God, how much more should we, dear brothers and sisters, look and study and know and believe and meditate on and hang on and cling to the word of God? It is the will of God. It is the will of God for you, not the back of the cereal box that you read this morning. 
Even, even if it says you can extend your life through vitamins, it's not the word of God for you. Okay? This is the word of God. It is eternally true. And you should look to it for your assurance. You should look for it to know what to do and to, what to believe. Now think of this. Jesus has just told, he's just told a few men for whom he would shortly be dying that he was going to be killed. He so clearly and simply talks about this terrible work that lies ahead in the coming week for him. And you remember it is terrible, and we know it was terrible for him because his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, even praying to his father that the cup might be taken away, and yet he prayed with faith. He, he, he prayed by saying, not my will, but yours be done. So he tells these 12 men he's about to be killed. He, he knows what his death will accomplish. He knows, as he says this, that his death will accomplish the redemption of those that the Father has given to him, his elect. He perfectly understands the scriptures. He spent years. He's the perfect teacher, right? He completely understands his topic. He doesn't have to learn it as he's going along. He completely understands it. And not only completely understanding, he completely believes it. He has faith in every single bit of it. And he's spent three years teaching the disciples. And what have they gotten? Well, not much. Verse 34. And the disciples understood none of these things. And the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's an interestingly redundant sentence. <laughs> they understood nothing. It was hidden. They did not comprehend. So these men who had the same scriptures as Jesus, the prophecies that spoke of him for ages past, who had, who had been taught intensely for three years at this point, just days before his death, do not understand what he's saying to them about being killed and then rising again. I mean, what are we to do with that? What are we to do with the fact that, that the apostles don't get what's going here? Do we take the... You know, do we take the theological route and begin to explain the ignorance of the apostles' blindness and, and um, you know, the Spirit isn't at work here? They're unable to see because they have not been regenerated. The Spirit is not at work. Well, Calvin doesn't go in that direction. That's why I like Calvin. Right? Calvin says this. They were stupid. He says, what stupidity was this not to understand what Christ said to them in plain and familiar manner on a subject that wasn't too lofty, but of which they had at their own suggestion entertained some suspicion. They've been asking about these things. But is it proper? But it is proper also to bear in mind, Calvin says, what I have formerly observed, the reason why they were held in such gross ignorance, which was 
that they had formed the expectation of a joyful and prosperous advancement and therefore reckoned it to be of the highest degree absurd that Christ should be ignominiously crucified. Hence we infer with what madness the minds of men are seized through a false imagination. And therefore we ought to be the more careful not to yield to any foolish thoughts and shut our eyes against the light. So Calvin says the reason they are an understanding is because they believe some crazy false narrative about what is going to happen in the coming days. That is... That is what is striking about what Jesus says. It is so matter-of-fact. It's so not open to interpretation. This, then this, then this, then this, then this. I'm going to be arrested by Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be spit upon. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And the apostles are like, it does not compute does not reconcile with what we know is going to happen, does not reconcile with the narrative that I've got built up in my mind and my heart that I'm, I'm passionate about. You know, he's pa- they're passionate about their vision. Everybody talks these days about their passions. right? They were passionate about this false narrative. And they're like, the party's about to start, right, Jesus? You've got it wrong. The apostles have gone off the rails. They have not been taught by Isaiah 53. They haven't been taught by the prophets. They've laid out a course based upon their own wishful thinking, based upon what God, what they think God should do now, based upon their own subjective thoughts. So they've departed from the prophecies. They've departed from the word of God. And Jesus said, this, then this, then this, then this. And they said, no. This and this. And it is the basis. A similar process, right, is the basis of your own confusion and wavering, isn't it? God has said this and this and this. And you are like, well, it doesn't jive with my experience. It really just doesn't line up with my desires. And indeed, God has said that he'll give me the desires of my heart. And so, um, that's not how it's going to play out. But let's get specific for a moment. What is it that offends the apostles? Or or what is it that they particularly misunderstand? Um, Jesus has just spoken of what? His death. And they don't get that. From beginning to end, from the sacrifices of the temple to the sacrifices of of Jesus, from Moses all the way to John, the sinfulness of mankind and the holiness of God have been proclaimed on every page, on every scroll of Scripture, right? And that dissonance between the sin of man and the holiness of God requires what? It requires intercession. In particular, it requires bloody intercession, bloody sacrifice. And in particular, it requires one sacrifice, one perfect sacrifice. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus is speaking here in our passage about what is required of him so that these apostles and anybody else might be saved and God might be declared just. And so there is absolutely no other way for salvation without this death. Without this shedding of the Son of Man's blood, there is no reconciliation between God and men. And Jesus has pointed to that, and the apostles are like, sounds like a cosmic bummer. Huh? I thought you were going to sit on the throne of Israel. And so what's my point? The apostles... Because because they are not fully understanding the value, the glory, the power of the death of Jesus, think that something amazingly less significant is better or preferable or glorious in its own right. right. Because they don't see the glory of the death of Jesus. A thousand other things become glorious to them. They think Jesus' death does does nothing. The apostles have never had French pressed coffee, right? They think Folgers, out of a 25-year-old drip coffee maker, is the best that there is, you know? If the death and resurrection of the Son of God is not the heart and center and central tenet of the Christian faith, something far less glorious and far less powerful will gobble up the hearts and attentions of its adherents. The death of Jesus is the center. Think about Islam, right? The death of Jesus Christ is disgusting to Muslims. They, they like the apostles in Luke. Think it ridiculous. They think Jesus' death does nothing other than prove his weakness. And missing the glory and full meaning and the import of his death, what disgustingly less lesser thing, lesser glory are they devoted to? Well, jihad. Killing those who do not worship the vindictive and arbitrary false god of of Islam. And so missing the glory of the death of the Son of God, their pride is given free reign to concoct some other easy way of salvation. The vicarious death of the Son of God is the very center of all things, of all reality, right? The book of Revelation continually speaks of the lamb that was what? Slain. Unshackle yourself from the need of the bloody sacrifice of the Son of God. Interpret, you know, this life and your future somehow away from Jesus' death. And you are left with your own narrative, your own false imaginations, your own vanity. You will put in Jesus' place something far less glorious. And you will be intensely devoted to it. Not wanting to accept Jesus' death, you will begin to think there is dramatic power in education. 
Not wanting to accept Jesus' death, you will begin to think there's salvation and sensations that you can feel. Or you'll begin to think that there's, you know, there's eternity to be found in nature. You'll begin to think there's power in your intellects and, and in your works. You will begin to think there's something incredibly glorious in any stupid, miserable, impotent thing. And you will begin to think there is some power in devoting yourself to things like statues. I mean, this is nothing new, dear brothers and sisters. This is something that we confront in our own hearts and we see through all the ages of history. The death of Jesus Christ, his cross, will always be what? A stumbling block. You will be mocked for thinking there's power in the cross. You you will be mocked for thinking that what Jesus said about his death and resurrection is the one thing you need to know. You will be mocked. So said the Apostle Paul, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? I mean, Christian, you you can't lose sight of that. You must never yield to the temptation to bow your knees to some lesser glory, which will mean the losing of your highest glory, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Children, children, children. The world will be trying to sell you a whole bunch of other glories. But there is only one glory, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Spend your life hoping in that, and you will not make the damning mistake of thinking you can build a tower to heaven with your own strength, or you can find some talisman that will keep you safe. Spend your life thinking about the surpassing value of the death of Jesus Christ and proclaim the Lord's death right up until he comes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Father, we praise you for Jesus. What glory, Father, that he so perfectly carried out the work that you gave him to do. What stupendous glory, Father, that it was for us. It was for your children to redeem them from the curse of the law. From the guilt and pollution of sin that we were born dead in because of the the sin of our father Adam. Lord, what glory there is in this. And Father, I pray that we would not lose We would not ever doubt the power of the toning work of Jesus. And I pray that we would always remember that it will be seen as foolishness to those who are perishing. So give us confidence to speak of this one glory, even though we may learn what what Jesus experienced in having spit upon his face. 
But we do proclaim that Jesus is the one glory of all reality. And we praise you for his broken body and his shed blood for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.